Deconstructionists, this is Maggie, the host of our podcast, where we'll collectively share our stories and experiences of leaving high-control religion, along with what it's been like for us to find new practices that help us feel good and confident in ourselves. I hope that hearing these stories reminds you that your deconstruction is valid, and most of all, that you are not alone on this journey. You are good, you are loved, and you are worthy, just as you are. Hello, deconstructionists. My guest today is Jeremy Schumacher. Jeremy is a licensed marriage and family therapist with 15 years of experience in the mental health field. Jeremy has expertise in relationship counseling, religious trauma, and sports performance. While Jeremy spent much of his career in private practice, he has also worked in higher education as an instructor, a successful volleyball coach, and as a director of student-athlete mental wellness. He is currently back in private practice in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, as the owner and operator of Wellness with Jer, and he is the host of the podcast, Your Therapist Needs Therapy. So thank you for being here, Jeremy. Yeah, thanks for having me. I always feel like therapists come into deconstruction with such a valuable perspective because there's often so much spiritual bypassing um, that happens in religious communities, and the work you do as therapists naturally unravels some of that. So yeah, I'm curious if that had an impact on your deconstruction at all. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I um, I started out my career as a Christian, uh, not a Christian counselor. I was licensed and everything. I was a real therapist, um, but I was working at a Christian counseling uh, private practice. So, um, but I went to University of Minnesota, uh, which is a big evidence-based practice school. They're one of the top research institutions in the nation. Uh, I'm at a point where I can support my alma mater now. So like shout out to University of Minnesota. So it was weird. Uh, I was K through 12 private school. Both my parents are Lutheran school teachers. So like I was parochial kid um, and college was my first foray into interacting with people who weren't evangelical Lutheran. Like it was a very small bubble I grew up in um, as far as who I interacted with. So yeah, it was definitely odd. Um, I think my professional life was very science-based, and then I had my upbringing kind of contrasted with that as being very um, stuffy, Lutheran, Christian. Uh, like, not even the fun, like, charismatic evangelical. Like, we were <laughs> stoic German Lutherans who, like, don't look happy, and our hymnology is a dirge, and, like, it's all very dry and boring. Um so it was weird then being a Christian counselor, like I was progressive and like LGBTQ plus uh, allied and a lot of things that didn't fit with my coworkers. Uh, and I'm a marriage therapist. So I was doing a lot of couples counseling. So it was, it was, I can't tell you how many hours I wasted helping people like not be dicks about like Ephesians, wives submit to your husband, uh, <laughs> like as a marriage therapist in a Christian setting, like you're trying to reinterpret scripture and be like, oh, well. It does say those words, but research tells us this. So, yeah, I don't know. I, I joke like my deconstruction took a lot longer than it needed to because I think the label Christian hung around a lot longer than I was doing anything particularly Christian other than going to church on the weekend. Yeah. Can you tell us a little more about the flavor of church you grew up in? Yeah, I grew up Wells. Uh, so I, I've done a couple different, uh, my stories out there in a couple different places. Um, and I always like hearing that no one else has ever heard of it because that makes my like heart happy that like it's not doing damage to a ton of people. Um, but the Wells is the Wisconsin Evangelical Lutheran Synod. So Lutherans are, um, there's ELCA, which is like the biggest branch of it. And that's very, not very, that's progressive. Um, women can be pastors is what I mean by progressive. Um, and they're like, okay with gay people. And there's Missouri Synod, which is a little bit more conservative. And then there's uh, Wisconsin Synod, which is what I grew up, which is the most conservative. Um, young Earth creationist. Um, the Bible is the literal word of God. Uh, communion, the, the body and blood of Christ are literally present in the moment when you're having communion. So yeah, like as conservative as you can be without growing up on a compound, I think. like. <laughs> I refer to it as a cult. Um, the Wells people refer to it as the Wells bubble. Like that's how they actively talk about it. And in Milwaukee uh, is the epicenter of it. So there's like the, um, the seminary is in the area. There's a, t uh, when I was younger, there were more schools, probably around a hundred um, elementary schools, um, maybe 80. I might be exaggerating a little, or probably around 80 schools that are Lutheran. So like, again, I grew up in the city of Milwaukee, just interacting with other Wells people. So even though it wasn't 
a cult in the true sense. Like that's, that's who I interacted with. Um, I vividly remember coming home when I was uh, in third grade, I was 10 years old and I told my parents I didn't want to go to heaven. Um, I didn't like singing or music and uh, heaven sounded pretty terrible if I had to sing the whole time. Uh, and then I was Christian until I was 30. So I, I kind of joked that like my deconstruction took 20 years. Um, but yeah, I mean, there are these markers. I remember arguing about communion. I remember um, as I got into my education and training outside of a Christian setting being like, yeah, I just need to let that piece of it go. I kind of became like, um, I don't know, my own made up version of Christian, whereas like I, I picked and choose, pick and chose like, oh, I like Paul says this thing. That sounds nice. That fits with what psychology tells me I can make that work. Like, so just kind of making myself stay in it. And then uh, I spent some time in higher ed as well. And as a teacher and instructor and and had that mindset of like, I can be the safe person on campus for all the LGBTQ kids. I can, I can be the person who helps change it from the inside. And I did that for a couple of years um, before just burning out and like realizing that's unhelpful for my own psyche, my own mental wellness. So I needed to kind of step away from that. Um, but that was Missouri Synod. So I was trying to be more progressive. I don't know. The Christian counseling place I was at was not religiously affiliated. It was, I mean, it was Christian, but just that like, so we had Catholics, we had Presbyterians, Baptists, whatever, like non-denominational folks. So I think uh, I existed in those spaces a long time. Um, but Wells is where I started, and it's the worst. I speak very poorly of it. <laughs> <laughs> As you should. It's wild to me. I'm just thinking back to something you said at the beginning about the marker of a progressive church. It's like where women can be pastors and, you know, LGBTQ people have human rights. It's like human rights is the progressive Obvious, level of things in Christianity. In context, I was I was putting it into context for the way the Lutherans think about it, not that's where I stand. Right, right. Well, I mean, that was something that was big for me in leaving was like, to find a space where I felt comfortable, I had to find a space that was labeled as very progressive by the church. But to me, it just felt very baseline. And just knowing that the church viewed these topics and these people in this way was a big reason for me not wanting to find a church anymore. Like, that's not a space I want to be in where, you know, it's progressive to think people are equal. Right. <laughs> What were some core beliefs that you internalized, either positive or negative? You can take that either way. Um, but some of the core beliefs that you internalized from church and how those might have played out for you and what that looked like. Um, yeah, I mean, I think purity culture messed me up pretty good. Um, the girl I dated in college, I went to public university, but found a good Christian girl to date. And, um, you know, like we made ourselves miserable. We were young and athletic. She was an athlete. I was an athlete. And, uh, you know, trying to not have sex, but also being young and horny and not having adults around or supervision around. Um, so, like, you know, we'd fool around and then break up and then be mad at each other and then get back together. And then, like... And that, that was three years. Like that was, <laughs> that was my college experience. Um, no. So, you know, I look back at that with regrets, maybe too strong of a word, but like acknowledgement of like, I wasn't a healthy person at that point. Um, I, I didn't know how to be healthy in a relationship. I didn't know how to advocate for myself. Um, I have a, I'm neurodivergent. I have ADHD and, and there's a lot there for, I think why I deconstructed um, and why it from 10 probably around that age, why it started to feel not like a good fit. And I was aware of that. But also, you know, when, when you have ADHD, there's a lot of black and white thinking or all or nothing thinking. And like, that's what fundamentalism teaches you. So there was there were aspects of growing up religious that my brain liked, even if they weren't healthy for me. So I loved having the rules. I loved judging other people and being like, oh, those people are drinking They're That's how dare they? They're not good Christians. <laughs> Um, you know, while having like this rebellious streak of my own and, and feeling like I really didn't fit in. So there's, there's a lot of stuff that, uh, I don't know. I feel like I've been out of the church long enough where I've done a lot of healing, but it's, it's still things that, um, pop up randomly as, as far as like, yeah, it's just some disconnection from my body and, and that's gotten a lot better from doing work. But like there's things that are being neurodivergent and there's things that the church made worse, um, mm -hmm. My mom has anxiety, um, but doesn't believe in mental health. Um, so, like, there's there's some of that too, where like growing up with a parent who's anxious, um, 
so I grew up with like a lot of don't make a scene, don't be that person at the the restaurant who's eating loudly or being weird or obnoxious. And like for a kid who's undiagnosed ADHD, like that doesn't make sense. Um, so I still catch myself in some of that stuff, like worrying what other people are thinking, even though I know for my own value system, like I don't give a shit, but like some of that stuff's still ingrained. So I talk about like deconstruction as your belief system, but then the deconversion process maybe takes a little bit longer. So some of that stuff's still in there. I find uh, I have two little boys. Um, I find being a parent is helpful in ways to kind of reconceptualize my own experiences. Like, right, I I was a lot like my five-year-old looks like I did. He's He's a tiny version of me. And I'm like, Right. I show up for him differently than my parents did. And like my parents are, I'm like fourth or fifth generation Lutheran. So like my parents are just as much victims of, of some of this stuff as I was. So it's hard to, I don't know, that's still hard to untangle because they're still Christian. I'm curious what led you to deconstruct. We have a little bit of background about your church experience, but um, what led you to start shifting some of your beliefs? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, I kind of had that experience of the science-based, uh, evidence-based practice I had in psychology, like the the evidence and the research uh, out there and what healthy couples looked like on how to do boundaries. Like that was work I was helping my clients do. And like, that's just not what you learn in Christianity. There aren't, aren't healthy boundaries. That's a feature, not a flaw uh, in the evangelical uh, background and like critical thinking is frowned upon. And I went to this university that's really big on research and science and the scientific method. Um, so that was stuff where I was like, man, I, I don't know why I was going to church. I wasn't getting anything out of it. I didn't enjoy the experience. I think it was just like, I didn't know people who had deconstructed. Everybody I knew had been Lutheran my whole life. So it was like, I think there was that fear of leaving. And and I definitely had hell trauma. Like I was an imaginative kid. I stayed away from like horror films. I never watched that stuff because I would get such bad nightmares. I would wake up in the middle of the night and be scared. So like some of those things stayed there for a while. Um, I think having a kid was like, kind of that I'm not teaching him Noah's Ark because I don't believe it. Um, and it was that, that was a firm thing for me. It was, so it wasn't just like, ah, I'm Christian, but like not super practicing or like I'm cultural Christian or whatever. But like, that was the thing was like, no, that's wrong. Like I cannot make myself teach this stuff to my kid. Like I don't believe it anymore. Were you deconstructed before you had kids then? Uh, no, I was, I was still identifying as Christian. I was still very much, uh, but I was like very liberal, like Christian in name only, you know, I Mm -hmm. I knew how to do it all. I think I was still in higher ed at that point. Um, so like I would lead a prayer because I was at Christian college. I'd lead a prayer after practice because I coached volleyball and like, that was fine for me, but it was, it was so performative in a sense. Like you just knew how to do it. It wasn't meaningful. It wasn't, you know, I wasn't like, oh, really hope God fixes this. It was just like, oh, this is how you end practice. So like, that's how yeah. you do it. And and so I'm aware, I was aware of my internal process, but I had no external pressure to like confront it or acknowledge it or or process it. And then having a kid was like, I don't like this. Like taking him to church was like, I took him to the playroom all the time because I didn't want to be in the service. And it was like, okay, why are you doing this again? Like, this isn't, um, what feels good. So, um, I think that's when I was like reading Richard Carrier, um, and Bart Ehrman and some of the things that people get into when they deconstruct, uh, more fully. I have two brother-in-laws who are pastors. So I was talking to one of them pretty extensively, um, which I think is great. Like if you want to deconvert, talk to a pastor. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, cause, cause it just like crystallized a lot of the stuff where it's like, I have an issue with this. And he would like kind of respond with the church's stance and be like, Right. So you understand me and you're taking the opposite stance. So like I shouldn't be in the church. Yeah, that's such a good point. If you want to deconvert, talk to a pastor. Like I've had experiences talking to people who are still entrenched in religion. And it's almost like, I don't know, like I've been out of it for long enough that I forget how wild some of the beliefs are until I'm in a conversation with someone. And then it's like, so you know the harm this is causing people. Like I'm explicitly telling you this and 
either you don't see it or you don't care because you're continuing to hold these harmful beliefs. Um, yeah. And it's always really validating in a way. Like, it reminds me why I choose not to be part of that community. I, I remember, like, having one of those conversations where uh, my brother-in-law, who's a pastor, said, you're doing your own research because I was reading like Bart Ehrman. And, and so um, those conversations were really helpful for me in, in a kind of an ironic way where I think he was trying to keep me in the church, but it really hastened uh, my experience out. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, uh, we were still showing up at church, attending church semi-regularly once a month, maybe until COVID hit. And then it was like, nah, like this is, mm-hmm. these are not our people. Um, they don't care about other people. Like, and I just said to my wife, like, I think I'm an atheist. And and I had had that thought for a while, but I was not ready to confront it publicly. Like, she's a, yeah. she was a school teacher. She was a Lutheran school teacher. We met because our sisters went to the same college. Like, that's, you know, she was raised Lutheran as well. And I think I had, not that she would reject me, but I had fear that, like, the premise of being an atheist would mm-hmm. be rejected. Yeah, well, atheist is the worst of the worst. Right. If you grew up the way we did, it's the ultimate rejection of God, right? Yeah, but like we had talked, and when I would read something, be like, "Hey, like, did you know the like the Gospels are written out of order, or like, did you know that these are forgery? Like, all Paul's epistles were not all written by Paul." So, like, I was sharing her with her stuff that I learned. She just wasn't super interested in engaging with it. Mm-hmm. And so, when I was finally like, ah, "I think I'm an atheist," she was like, "Cool, me too," and I was like. All right, then. <laughs> so so I lucked out. And her experience is very different than mine. I mean, she has a, a litany of misogyny and sexism and things in working in a Lutheran school as a female who's intelligent and outspoken and, um, you know, cares for her kids. Like, that's not actually what Christianity is about. So mm-hmm. um, she, she had her own kind of different route to get there where I took a very intellectual, I wanted to understand the history of the church and I wanted to understand like, you know, I needed a, a scientific approach to let go of my health trauma, mm-hmm. honestly, is how I look back on it. And I think she was just like, right, like these are not our people. Um, and she was a little bit more readily accepting of that than maybe I was, I don't know. I think it was health trauma. That's where I kind of land is like, I was, I was scared I was wrong. And if I was wrong, I was going to hell and that I was willing to like play hedge my bets as if that would get me eternal life. Like, well, <laughs> At least if I go to church once a month, I might still get into heaven. <laughs> right. Um, Maybe it'll be enough. Yeah. So there's a bunch of stuff that it's like, I don't know, the longer you're out and you reflect on it, you're like, why was I doing that? <laughs> yeah. But it's all we know for a long time. So you don't know what to go to next. Yeah. So to let those beliefs go and to leave feels scary because you have nothing. Well, and you know, these these podcasts and, and stuff, they exist. They existed then when I was deconstructing. But like when you grow up in basically a cult you don't have access to that stuff you know the curriculum i grew up with was apologetics like that's how i learned history was the bible's version of history like i don't know very much about space i'm 35 years old i have multiple graduate degrees and like i have this huge gap in my knowledge because i wasn't taught it growing up like um so it's it's one of those things where it's like you look i don't know i don't i try not to judge myself and certainly doing the work i do i hold a lot of space for people like you don't know that stuff's out there when you're deconstructing Mm -hmm. yeah and thinking about your brother-in-law's response to you that you talked about earlier like oh you're doing your own research as if it's a bad thing there's something bad about seeking knowledge in the church so even if you do realize this information is out there it can be hard to let ourselves look at it because we're not supposed to seek knowledge or answers outside of the church. Um, I like to think about the story of Eve in this way. Mm-hmm. You know, Eve is punished in Genesis for eating the fruit of knowledge of good and evil. And the idea of seeking knowledge is portrayed as bad and sinful right from the beginning of Genesis. Yeah. I love seeing like the memes where it's like Satan will whisper in your ear, like, listen to yourself or whatever. It's like, Satan sounds so much healthier than <laughs> God does. Like, what? Yeah, totally. <laughs> like, when I think about Genesis now, I'm like, oh, I know which side I'm on. Right. Satan is the good one in this story. Yeah. Um, I'm thinking back to something you mentioned earlier, and I'm wondering about this deconversion versus deconstruction process for yourself. And I'm thinking specifically about hell trauma, which you mentioned was big for you, and how you might have undone some of that in your mind, but ways that it stuck with you in your body. Yeah, I think um, being ADHD is kind of a paradoxical existence because it I played sports at a D1 college. I've coached for most of my uh, adult life. Like I've been around sports for so long, but I ha- I also had this like 
blind spot with my body. Like um, sex and purity culture was so taboo growing up. Like I didn't get a birds and bees talk because you just didn't talk about it. Like Mm -hmm. (laughs) that's how taboo it was growing up. Right. Um, And and, but like as a highly sexual person. And so like uh, having a high libido, somebody who has ADHD, like that's a shit ton of dopamine you get from having an orgasm like does one of the best natural ways to get dopamine is to have sex. And so like, it was a very confusing process for, for me to like navigate some of that stuff. And I didn't get diagnosed till I was in my postgrad. So I got my diagnosis late in life and like made sense of that later in life. Um, but it's one of those things where uh, like, even like once I was married, like having like shame about sex or like being like, you know, I don't feel great about like, having sex to God's glory. And like, I I still, even with my wife who loves me in a great many ways and um, has never ever judged me for anything. Like I still had all this like shame and like fear of like, Oh, that's a little too perverted or like, that's too kinky. Like I should not bring that up or whatever. And like, um, that was like a, that was a big thing for me is like lust and some of that like shame based body stuff really stuck with me for a long time. And again, like then, uh, you're like, why does it have to do with hell? <laughs> the fear for the punishment me, for everything is hell. <laughs> right. It wasn't, it wasn't fear that like my wife would leave me or judge me. Like it was like, I am too bad or like too gross or too outside the norm and like again like some of that's trauma probably from my history with with my college girlfriend of like oh you watch porn you're a pervert and like um so like some of that stuff whereas like that message had been i soaked it up from being a little kid like sex is bad and wrong you don't talk about it and then had this relationship where it was like sex is bad and wrong and you should feel bad about wanting it and and that just like hung around for a long time and i think it lived in my body like again it just stayed there where like i'm a pretty chill dude i got long hair and the beard i'm wearing a big lebowski sweater like i give off that vibe and it's genuine but there was always this part of me that was like tense like the that trauma little t trauma hung out in my body as like i need to control like people's perception of me or i need to like show up in a certain way for certain places and again that gets messy to untangle because some of that's adhd like i'm aware i'm neurodivergent and i'm weird and like I'm more comfortable doing a suicide assessment than talking about small talk. Like that's odd and off-putting for people. So like, how do I do some of this? Um, But a lot of it was like, right. It would show up as like, Ooh, I'm like, I'm not good enough to go to heaven. I'm going to go to hell. Um, And there are other things too. Um, But it, it was again, like always kind of this pendulum swing. Like I was pretty sacrilegious in a lot of ways. I would, listen to system of a down and metal and like make jokes about the virgin birth. And like, you know, I, I was very um, not concerned about certain things, almost irreverent about things that other people would think were offensive. Um, Like I liked South park and like, you know, things that the good Christians that I knew weren't engaging with. Um, So yeah, it it was weird. And again, like just kind of a lot of internal stuff. Like I, I feel like so many people didn't realize that was going on for me or like wouldn't have seen it. It didn't show up anywhere other than like in my own judging myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And again, we don't know anything different. So we don't even realize how unhealthy it is to be living in a constant state of fear of going to hell. Like that's not a healthy way to live your life. And there is something you can do about it. But mm. we're supposed to think that we're supposed to be afraid of hell. And that's what keeps us in Christianity. It's not a design flaw. It is the design. Right. So yeah, if we don't know that there are other options out there, we don't know that we don't have to be living in this constant state of fear and we don't even know to start undoing that thinking yeah and and fundamentalism is very black and white thinking so like you're either a saved or unsaved you're either a heathen or you're the chosen elect like it's it's like it's not like hey here are the other options in case you don't want to be a christian it's like you're either a christian or you're going to hell right and so it it is like that information control where like right you're not aware of what else is out there mm-hmm I'm so curious about this little you that didn't want to go to heaven. I love this and thought it sounded so boring. Um, Did that stick with you or did you shift your view of heaven at some point? What was that like? You know, I look back, like I spent 20 years, uh, I would say, deconstructing. um, And it 
I was always convincing myself to stay Christian. I just, I would have never worded it that way. I didn't realize that's what I was doing, but like, I didn't like church. Like church wasn't a fun experience for me. I didn't like the music. Nothing about it was a a good vibe. You know, I hit puberty and I like this girl in youth group, like, sure, I'll go to youth group and like see this girl I like, but like, it wasn't because like I felt the spirit. It's like, oh, I want to talk to this girl I'm crushing on. Or, um, you know, I would read the Bible during church. Like I wouldn't sing the hymns. I wouldn't like it sort of listened to the sermon, but I was like always like trying to intellectualize stuff um, and trying to like get meaning out of it because it was such a drag to be there. (laughs) Yeah. And I'm thinking especially about a young kid with ADHD, like you must have had so much pent up energy and you're just wanting to move around, but you can't and you just have to sit there and be still. Oh, and like my parents, my parents are both Lutheran school teachers. So like, Mm No, like, going to the playroom when I was a kid. No, like, here's the kids' bulletin, so color. What, Like, nope, you sat there and you listened. Um, I think as I got older, they kind of left me alone. Like, why aren't you singing? Came up every once in a while. But I was like, well, he's reading the Bible, so that's good. Like, um, <laughs> but, you know, like, my parents are weird. Throwing shade at my parents here. My mom has undiagnosed anxiety. Like, my mom's an English teacher, and she would, like, go through the bulletin and circle all the grammatical errors. So, like... My parents are weird in that, like, uh, again, it was like Christianity in our household was an intellectual endeavor. It was so we didn't speak in tongues. We didn't feel the spirit moving through us. It was like intellectual. Like, this is why Mm -hmm. we believe. Like, so I could I was in high school reading like pastoral dissertations on like the paradoxes of God and like, you know, Mm -hmm. weird shit that I look back. I'm like, what a loser I was. Um, (laughs) Well, as judging all the cool kids for drinking. Um, (laughs) But like, it's so weird looking back on it. I was like, right. I was like searching for like, why does this not fit for me? Like I was trying to make this thing fit that never felt like it fit. And like, I'm white, I'm straight presenting, I'm male presenting. Like I am the poster child for what evangelical Christianity is supposed to look like. Mm -hmm. Um, And like, it just didn't fit. I argued with my youth pastors at youth group. I argued with my pastor about communion. I argue like there's so many times I can think like, oh, that was me deconstructing. I just didn't have the language for it yet. Um, but I just kind of always, whether it was spiritual bypassing or it was fear of hell or like someone gave me a good enough answer to like be cool with it for a while. Mm-hmm. Like I just found ways to stay in it, even when it was like, oh, this is not a good fit for mm-hmm. me. Yeah. It's like you have just enough information to keep you in it for this much longer and then yeah. this much longer. I remember like communion was a big thing for me where I was like, if I choke on my communion wafer <laughs> and die and you do an autopsy, like I will not have blood and human flesh in my system. Yeah. And, like we're biblical literists, how I grew up. So it was like the body and blood of Christ, like literally the body and blood of Christ. And I was just like, no, it's not. Mm-hmm. And they're like, well, this is how we think about it. And this, and like, again, the intellectualizing, like this is how we translate the Hebrew and like all that stuff where I was like, okay, I don't speak Hebrew. So like, that doesn't make sense, but like good enough, I guess. Yeah. Like that was kind of where I always landed. It was like good enough, I guess. I don't want to go to hell. So I guess I'll stay a Christian. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you feel like you wanted to know more answers so you could prove to yourself that it was right? And maybe I'm asking this because I felt this way. And I think it's one of the reasons I went to a Christian college. Like I had enough questions at that point that I needed to get some answers and prove to myself that it was real. So I kept looking for more answers. And like, maybe if I just find out this one more bit of information, it will all make sense. And that'll be the piece that I was missing or something to like fill in these doubts that I had um yeah do you feel like that too and like that was part of your intellectualizing Christianity for yourself yeah I I think that's why I was like that weird kid who was reading pastoral dissertations like Mm -hmm. I was looking for like what will make it all fit because it didn't fit and and again like there are parts of it that I leaned into that that fit well for me but like I didn't like I didn't pray in my personal life like I always felt guilty about that but like it was just never a thing that occurred to me and like we're ADHD it's hard to have daily habits but like that's not that's just never a meaningful thing to me I didn't really feel better when I did it and like I think Christians could listen to my story and be like oh he was never a real Christian but like I was on I was the youth representative on church council I was the vice president of church council when I was uh, in my 20s like I was doing all the things to be the good Christian that I was supposed to be. I was doing all the things, searching, reading, um, small groups, like all the stuff you're supposed to do that it's, you know, supposed to be blessed and all these things. It's like, it just, and like I was privileged. So I was blessed in a lot of ways, but like not, Mm -hmm. 
not spiritually, not because of God, just because of privilege and I'm white. Um, so I think it is one of those things where, yeah, I was, I was searching for a lot. Lutheranism is kind of weird because it's, it's paradoxical in the sense of like, um, faith is, uh, what saves you. And so faith, like not questioning and, um, believing, even if it doesn't make sense, like, again, that paper that sticks out to me is the five paradoxes of God. Like, how can God be truly just and truly merciful? How can God be a man and God? Like, these things that do not make sense. And somebody wrote this paper, and I, as a teenager, was, like, desperately trying to make it make sense. So here I'm reading this pastor's thesis on why it doesn't make sense, but it's okay. And, like, again, just that, like, okay, good enough. I I have something to hang my hat on Mm -hmm. and, like, still get to go to heaven. Yeah, even though heaven is a place you didn't want to go. I just I love didn't this. Want to go. S- some someone told me my uh, the response it ten year old Jeremy got was um, uh, you like baseball, so there'll be baseball in heaven. And like little ten year old me was like, but everyone's perfect, so how will we keep score? Like who will be better? But like again, just that that theme of like good enough. I guess I can like set it aside. I can leave it alone and, mm-hmm. and move on to something else. Yeah, and like maybe someday it'll make more sense to me. Right. Like maybe I'm the one missing a piece and that's why it doesn't make sense. Well, and around that age, I also said I didn't want to go to school anymore, which is when I think my ADHD had to have been kicking in mm-hmm. um, or being problematic anyway. So like there were a couple things where I kind of got like patted on the head. Mm-hmm. I was like, well, but you're going to keep doing this. So <laughs> Yeah. You've talked some about this, but could you put some more words to what beliefs you've let go of since leaving Christianity and what that's looked like for you? Man, all of them. Uh, <laughs> no, like... Uh, so I, I, I name dropped Richard Carrier, um, who I, who I think is great. Um, he is a mythicist who basically says like, odds are Jesus never existed. Like there was not a historical Jesus. He's, it's a myth. Um, Christianity fits all major religion, uh, myth-making themes. There's evidence of other rising and dying gods around the time in Egypt, um, like the cult of Osiris and some of that stuff. So like, as I dug into... Richard Carrier is a historian. Um, and so when I dug into this this guy who's doing the work of early Roman times and some of this uh, Middle East religions, uh, Egyptian religions, some of the stuff, and, and the way a historian, a scholar, he went to Columbia, like somebody who could speak my language and cite sources in a way that I understood and like do the, the scholarly thing that I knew and had been trained in, um, that was for me like, oh, yeah, I can let all this go. And again, I wasn't comfortable being like out and out as an atheist, but for my internal process, that's that's what relieved a lot of it was like, oh, this makes so much more sense. It wasn't like my eyes were open, like epiphany moment. It was like a puzzle mm-hmm. piece fell into place. Like mm-hmm. I'd been looking for this piece to fizz, finish the puzzle and now I found it. Um, yeah. So it was, it was pretty easy for me to just like let it go. And again, there are things that hang in there and pop up every once in a while that I think just because of the environment I was raised in are kind of ingrained. But like as far as belief systems go, like I was ready and like I had been waiting for years to have that thing that was like, oh, this is made up. Just let it go. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, that was easy for me to just be like, right. Like and and when you study cults like i'm a religious trauma specialist so like i've done all this work since leaving to like understand you know behavior control information control thought control emotion control the might the stephen hassan's uh hassan's uh bite model is uh about like authoritarian control like right christianity is all of those things it, it fits that perfectly and so for me intellectualizing it that way has made like a lot of genuine authentic sense to me of like oh right this makes more sense as a middle eastern uh uh you know, turn of the millennia type religion and like failed apocalyptic prophet, like all these things make sense as opposed to like, yeah, this tiny little sect of Christians in Wisconsin are going to be the ones who get to go to heaven and everyone else goes to hell. Like that never <laughs> made sense for me. So yeah, um, yeah, I, I kind of just wholesale was like, ah, right, good. I don't believe this. It's mm-hmm. gone. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I read a book for my Old Testament class in college that sounds similar. It's called Old Testament Parallels. And it was all these other myth stories that happened in the same geographical location and around the same time as biblical writings, um, like all these other flood stories and creation stories. 
And reading this book was such a big moment for me in college and helped me see the Bible for what it is, or at least for what I believe it is, which is a collection of stories and myths Mm -hmm. that were helpful for a people group at a time. Just like all these parallel stories and myths were helpful for similar people groups for a time. Yeah. Well, like Yom Kippur is like um, you take two identical lambs and one gets sacrificed and one gets saved. And like Mark has that story of Barabbas. Barabbas translates to the son of God. Like, what are the odds? Um, so, again, like looking at it as like, oh, that doesn't make any sense unless it's a myth. Like, that's a good story to tell. But that doesn't happen in the real world. Like, that's not how real life works. That's how Hercules works. That's how other myths work. So, like. Right. But again, I think there's a lot of whitewashing, uh, taking the Judaism out of Christianity and, mm-hmm. and making its own thing. Like mm-hmm. where as far as a white Midwesterner growing up in, you know, the 90s, like I didn't learn what Yom Kippur was like, you know, there was no. <laughs> so uh, even if Jesus was celebrating the Passover, like that's not a thing we spent time studying what Passover meant. We just studied right. the the Christian Bible. So, right. Um, yeah, a lot of that stuff and like learn, looking at the New Testament as literature, I think, is fascinating, um, just not as a belief system. I have a lot of space and grace for people who don't come out. Like if my family bothered to look at anything in my business, like I'm not hiding that I'm an atheist, but like, right, I grew up in a family that doesn't care about mental health. So like, why are they going to look at what? the therapist in the family is doing. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I was going to ask how it is with your family. Like, how do they view your work as a mental health professional? Do they listen to your podcast? Do they know what you do? Okay. Uh, No, it's funny. Um, Right. I'm a therapist. I have been for 15 years uh, in January. Um, They just don't interact with it at all. You know, it's interesting. My dad's a school uh, guidance counselor. And so, like, there's an awareness of mental health there. Mm -hmm. Um, he used to send me clients like hmm. <laughs> so like he knows what I do, but they've kind of like elevated it to a point of like that's Jeremy's thing. Like he does it over here. So like, yeah, my my dad has that awareness of like there's a level of expertise and professionalism that I have. But like mm-hmm. I'm the baby of the family. My family still thinks of me in a lot of those ways. Like my mom doesn't like when I like joke about like, well, if somebody had taken me to a doctor to get diagnosed with ADHD, like she kind of takes that as an indictment, but like a lot of it comes from her own trauma history, her own undiagnosed Mm -hmm. anxiety. So like, it's kind of like if you admit that mental health is a thing, then you have to confront your own stuff. And and there's a generational gap too, where like, again, just mental health for that generation is not a normal thing in the way that it is for ours. But um, yeah, you know, I I, uh, had Jason Aaron, who's a a award-winning comic book uh, author. Like there's 16 best... Uh, writer award, 16 people have won the best writer award since like the start of it in the 90s. And he's one of them. And it's like, that's so weird that he's on my little obscure mental health podcast. And like, so I was stoked. Like, I'm a big superhero nerd. So like, I got this guy who wrote Thor. Like, that's awesome. Yeah. Like, let me tell. So like, I talked to my mom about it because she's an English teacher. I thought like yeah. there would be. And like, she was like, oh, that's that's interesting. But mm. like, never listened to it. And like, I know she didn't listen to it because I talk about being an atheist in it. Um, So I kind of, <laughs> yeah. I think I'm passive aggressively testing the waters but like i've had you know um my brother who i have a really good close relationship with knows he listens to the podcast he supports my work we've talked about it um Mm -hmm. he doesn't go to church but he still believes in god like you know we Mm -hmm. know where each other are at and we're respectful of that so i'm not like a angry atheist trying to deconvert people but um i'm very like open about it i've had some extended family contact me um which has always been fine like i don't i'm not hiding in it or like embarrassed about it it's more of just mm-hmm. like for my personal family like that's never been part of our relationship so i don't feel any obligation to open that door now of like yeah you don't follow my career so why do you care where i'm at with my beliefs um yeah. not in like a mean way just in a like right that's not the relationship we have my mom yeah. is a wonderful grandma and i have a lot of good things to say about her and like in the mental health world she's it's, it's not relevant. So, right. yeah, it's it's interesting, you know, and, and working with people in this space, I think is, I think that's a helpful experience for me to have because um, otherwise it would have just been an intellectual exercise to be like, but you're not wrong to be an atheist. So why not just come out? So like, I think I have a lot more grace because of my lived experience for like, 
there's a lot of good reasons to not come out. Sometimes it's safety. Sometimes it's financial support or babysitting or, you know, any number of things of losing an inheritance or whatever. Like maybe you have a sibling or a cousin or somebody with special needs and you're not going to get access to seeing them anymore. So it's like, Mm-hmm. there's a lot of reasons to put safety first, especially with religious trauma. Cause like you don't feel safe mm-hmm. or even just that you still want to have a relationship with somebody and it doesn't feel like coming out about your beliefs would be good for that relationship. That can be reason enough. Mm-hmm. And I think for some people to not come out in that way feels inauthentic and doesn't feel like a relationship anymore. And that's of course, okay and valid too. And generally more the way I lean, honestly, but it's also valid if you feel like you can have some kind of connection with somebody without coming out of the deconstruction closet. And if doing that feels like it would jeopardize that relationship and connection that's important to you, you don't have to do that. It's up to you, which we're not used to coming out of the church where evangelizing and telling people about our faith was a requirement, but you get to decide now how much or how little you tell people about yourself. Yeah. And I think there's like that fundamentalist black and white thinking of like, well, now I'm an atheist, so I'm obligated or like required to tell people like you're not Mm -hmm. like you don't you don't have to tell them that you're having sex or that you're queer or like you can like if you can't tolerate having an inauthentic relationship, then let's figure out how to come out. But like Mm -hmm. if this is what keeps the peace and there's no benefit and all costs to coming out, then like, why are we doing that? Yeah. So but I, I think for some people, again, there's lots of valid reasons to come out as well. Like I think that provides safety and allows for some chosen family and, and um, there's benefits to those things. But I, in my work as a therapist, like I always couch it in cost benefit analysis terms because I think like it's never just good. It's never just bad. Like there's Mm -hmm. pros and cons to it based on your own personal life circumstances. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, based on conversations I've had with people on my Instagram account, I think family relationships is something that a lot of people have a hard time with. And it's something that can be really tricky to know how to navigate. So I'm wondering if you could share some boundaries that you've set with your family and share how you've managed to navigate that, because it sounds like you're really open and general about your beliefs, but also that that's not part of your relationship with your family. So I'm curious what boundaries you've set and how that's worked for you. Yeah, I think um, because setting good boundaries has not always been just about deconstruction for me. I'm Mm -hmm. a marriage therapist, so I do a lot of boundaries. So like, I think a lot of those boundaries were in place with my family where um, this is going to sound harsh. And I think some of it is because I'm neurodivergent, but um, I was always comfortable like with like, these are my sports friends. These are my nerdy board game friends. These are my friends who uh, I play volleyball, like whatever. Like I always put people in categories and like just was aware that they existed there. And like, it didn't bother me that I couldn't be myself around them because like, these were my sports friends. I don't invite them to play board games. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think like I had this kind of uh, primitive version of boundaries that I was doing with my family where I was like, this is how they know me. And so like, this is how I show up when I'm around them. And like, that's inauthentic. I get that. But like, I, I don't know. I think I've been doing that since I was a teenager. Like, I, <laughs> I don't look at it as something where it's like, I had this super close relationship. There wasn't drama with my parents, but like, we weren't friends. Like, I don't know. So like, it was fine. Like, right. I don't need to tell you everything. Like I sent my mom my college papers because she's an English teacher. So she could check them for grammar. Like that was mm-hmm. our relationship. It wasn't mm-hmm. like, let me tell you what I did last weekend. Like, gosh, no, I didn't want her to know what I was getting up to. Um, <laughs> So I think I had those boundaries in place a lot. I think with my brother, who's um, outside of my wife, uh, probably my favorite person in the whole world, like he and I have different boundaries. Like we've talked about it. Um, I make a lot of space for his questions. He's a little older than I am. He's a different lived experience than I do. He went into the military and then got um, his college degrees after, whereas like I was a oddly, in spite of my diagnosis, uh, a star student who really kind of went through school quickly. So it was, it was one of those things where like we've we've had a different life experiences and different paths to end up in similar places. And so he and I are really close. And so those conversations are a lot different. I have a lot of grace and I make a lot of time for questions he has um, because I think he's engaging in it to learn um, and uh, is putting good faith effort into those things. He mm-hmm. checks out my work. He asks questions. He sends me stuff. So, like, uh, I think that's good. Uh, I have a cousin who's, you know, messaged me on Instagram privately a couple times um, of, like, 
hey, like, what about this? Or like sending me memes or whatever. And, and some other family members, extended family members who have been like, what are you doing for your kid's school? And like, that's awesome. Like, I'm, I'm more than happy to have those conversations with people, even if they're still identifying as Christian. So um, I think I just take it as a very case by case basis based on like what I'm getting from that person, what my relationship looks like. I'm an introvert. Everyone's like, what? You talk so much. Um <laughs> people are kind of always surprised by that but like i i am uh comfortable with my couple of people being my people and like outside of that i don't need to Mm -hmm. exert a lot of energy into keeping relationships i can but like i got my people and i'm good with my people and my people and i have really good healthy boundaries and everyone else is kind of like in their space um Mm -hmm. and that's not solid like i'm open to changing those things um but it's it's kind of the way it works where it's like yeah uh, if you want to keep the peace and sit quietly while your family says grace, like that's fine. If you don't want to engage with that, then show up after the meal. Like, you know, I kind of help people understand, like, stop worrying about other people's expectations. Like what, where's your comfort level? What resources do you have to be doing the things you want to be doing? And like, let's mm-hmm. build that out. So yeah, it's, it's awkward sometimes with my family when they want to pray and like they see my boys don't know the table prayer because we never taught that stuff to yeah. them. Like, it's just like, well, well, no, but like my family's so non-confrontational that no one ever brings it up. And I'm like, again, I don't feel any obligation to further that conversation outside of my brother who's been really good about it. But I will say my brother's adopted. And um, so I think the concept of like chosen family has been really ingrained in me from from a young age where like the, the person in my family who I am not um, specifically blood related to, he's biologically my cousin. It's the mm-hmm. whole thing. Okay. Um, but but he's not my biological brother. Like he and I share the least amount of DNA out of anyone in my in my uh, family of origin. And yet I'm closest to him and yeah. like always have been. He and I have never fought. We maybe fought one time as adults. Like as kids growing up, we shared a room. I'm eight years younger than him. Like the idea that we never fought is like crazy to me. Yeah. Um, and, and we've always gotten along. And so I was like 12. I was an old kid. Uh, I was not young when someone was like, why is your brother of a different last name than you? And I was like, I have no idea. <laughs> um, and and I was just like, it never occurred to me that that was weird or mattered because I grew up with him as my brother. Like, so uh, I think the idea of chosen family, I grew up with it. And so it was a really easy concept for me to like adopt in setting healthy boundaries or like deconstructing or finding people who are neurodivergent that my brain could get along with of like, great, these are my people. Like these are my, this is my chosen family. Like in my household now with my wife and two boys, we follow the wheel of the year, which is like the solstices and the changing of the seasons and stuff. And um, like, I don't invite my family of origin to that stuff. Like it's very meaningful to me personally, but like, that's not, that's not stuff I share with them. Like these are things that I'm building with my family and my chosen family is invited to those things. But um, so yeah, the boundaries look different whether I'm setting them or I'm showing up in a different place. But like I always say boundaries go back to your presence, like what you show up to, what you put energy into, like that's where you set your boundaries. So it's, it's not for other people, it's for yourself. And that was a really, really long answer, but I spend a lot of time talking about boundaries. So like, it's a good question, like how to do some of that stuff. I think there's so much to unpack with like how you were raised, were you fundamentalist or that black and white thinking to like understand it's a big paradigm shift for people. Like you get to do what you want. Yeah. <laughs> like it's not about other people. Boundaries are about you. Yeah. And like, yeah, it's, it's your choice. You have autonomy, which is yeah, new. It's scary. Yeah. It, it's so foreign for some people that like, mm-hmm. wait, I have options. I don't know. Like, what if I pick the wrong thing? Right. And so it's like such a paradigm shift to be like, there isn't a wrong thing. Like, what do you, what do you want to do? Like, what would be your ideal? And let's build that out. So, um, it's fascinating. And and I've done therapy long enough where I don't just do that stuff with religious people. So like, it's a thing for other people too. religion, I think makes it worse. <laughs> uh, it amplifies it. But like, again, boundaries are hard for everyone. Like that's what I spend most of my career doing has been boundaries work, whether it's with Christians or non-Christians or deconverting people or atheists or pagans or whatever, like boundaries are hard. Like Mm -hmm. social relationships and social expectations don't fit what healthy boundaries always look like. Yeah. Yeah. Well, to start to bring us to a close, I like to end with some kind of encouragement for listeners. So what kind of encouragement would you offer the deconstructing person, especially thinking about someone still in the throes of their deconstruction or someone maybe feeling stuck where they are and um, offering advice about what comes next? Yeah, uh, I think what comes next is hard because if you think back to when you were a Christian, you were 
can't imagine. You know, it's I cannot imagine twenty five telling twenty five year old Jeremy like you're going to be an out and out atheist and like an atheist activist and like doing religious trauma. Like he would have been like, nah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that was when I was like a progressive, like liberal leaning Christian. So like it still would have been such a foreign concept to me. <laughs> yeah, my high school self would have been shocked at who I am now. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I think it's one of those things where like I tell people like connect community like that's one of the the big things that like you're isolated and you're cut off in the church and that's what a lot of people say the church did well but like it it's a human need to have community I don't think the church does it well but I do think the church provides it at least mm-hmm. um, so I think for the people who are in the throes of it like connecting to your community like finding your cohort of people to deconstruct with uh, if I can use that word there like I think that's really helpful for like it's hard to see those people who've been out for five or 10 years and they're like, oh, it's great. You're going to live your best life. There's so much more joy and fun and like your your authentic self and, and like you're worried about going to hell. Like that doesn't help you in that moment. So I'm really big on like connect your community. Um, and, and within that is building your chosen family. But I think that's a little bit more long-term process, like um, finding the people you're safe with and treat you the want to be treated. Like that's where I want people to land. But I do think community is, is great. I love podcasts like this. Um, the Facebook communities that exist out there, um, some of the religious trauma people I work with have Facebook groups or there's the podcast uh, Facebook groups. Like these things are wonderful. Find people who are going through it with you or are recently out of it and and build that community because that's what will help you gain the confidence and and feel more comfortable moving forward. Yeah, thanks. Well, if listeners want to connect with you or find out more about what you do, how can they reach out? Yeah. Uh, Wellnesswithjare.com is my website. I have a media tab that links to my podcast, which is Your Therapist Needs Therapy. Um, I blog regularly. I have a YouTube channel. All my socials are at Wellness with Jer, so Instagram, uh, YouTube. I have a lot of religious trauma specialists on the podcast. So if you're interested in learning more, there's there's a, a list of names there who relate to purity culture or talk about religious trauma or sex ed or some things that are deconstruction adjacent. Yeah, great. Well, I'll link all of that in the show notes so listeners can find it easily. And thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hello Deconstructionists. If you have any questions, comments, or parts of your own experience you'd like to share on the podcast, you can email me at hello.decons at gmail.com. And as always, you can find me over on Instagram at hello underscore deconstructionists, where together we are building community post-evangelicalism. Huge thank you to Amy Azera for writing the theme song for this podcast. And when this sweet little bop inevitably gets stuck in your head, I hope it reminds you of this wonderful community that's here with you. Thanks to all our guests for sharing these parts of their stories with us. And of course, to you for listening. See you next time. Gotta deconstruct. Oh.